How do we disrupt the entrenched power dynamics in finance to advance a more equitable future? Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. Welcome. I am Joy, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. In this episode, we just have one segment, a conversation between myself and my colleague, Pablo Freund, who spent several months looking in depth at economic sanctions and investments tied to the realities in Afghanistan at the end of 2021 and into the early part of 2022. And so we're coming off of the shift in power that happened in August of 2021 and a devastating impact for many as the Taliban took control of Afghanistan again. And so in this episode, we're looking at how do we bring a financial imagination to the work of looking at economic sanctions? One of the most complicated parts of our economic system in understanding using sanctions as a tool to create peace or end conflict, to navigate a very, very complicated terrain. Within the theme of this podcast, we're looking at how to use finance as a tool for social change. And what Pablo struggled with for months and months was looking at how do we think about this moment in a humanitarian crisis? Where is there space for a financial imagination in the midst of a humanitarian crisis? Enjoy. So I've brought Pablo into this conversation to unpack the power dynamics around sanctions, which has been blowing his mind and my mind and the world's mind, actually, over the last however long as we've been looking at sanctions and the our hopes for them in terms of their ability to advance human rights, but also the impact that they're having on the economy. I think the word sanctions has come up more in our world in the last year than for a very long time. So obviously we're going to talk about Afghanistan and, and, and Ukraine, which is really the probably two biggest sites in that. So step back for a second. Help me actually understand, because I get lost in the details on this a little bit, like what actually, what actually What's the point of a sanction? Like, what does it actually do? I mean, sanctions are really meant to uh, create a limiting of the ability to transact in financial markets. Um, they limit the financial movements, uh, investment, uh, and make it uh, extremely difficult for the subject of the sanctions to be on the receiving end or sending end of money, but not only exclusively money, uh, it locks out the participant uh, from the international financial system in other ways, which are more subtle and not in the explicit ways, but also in these um, other behaviors that accompany it, which is uh, some actions might be forbidden, 
but the fact that someone might be on a sanctions list means that global financial institutions shy away from interacting with those parties altogether. Uh, so although it's uh, for all intents and purposes, financial systems banishment. But both in a kind of surgical way, and I think what's interesting is there's both kind of very surgical assumptions that these sanctions are stopping particular behaviors, but they also have a, well, the opposite of halo effect, right? A, a damning effect overall that says bad. And so there's a kind of ex exacerbation of our understanding of the risk tied to those, to those economies. And am I, am I getting that right? Absolutely. Uh, if you think about just the history of sanctions was uh, financial sanctions at, in the era of the Versailles Treaty was the, a weapon of last resort because it was considered a weapon of war. Uh, but now it's actually become the tip of the spear. It's the first steps that you take uh, against a, an international actor or a, a domestic actor specifically uh, because I think over time more parties in the global system have recognized uh, how uh, impacting access to the financial system is is such a deterrent to behavior. Um, if we take that one step further to address what you were talking about, in the scope of weapons of war, in sanctions, you do have those targeted sanctions at individuals or organizations that are, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, that type of smart munitions uh, uh, and then you have uh, wider uh, types of sanctions like the ones that have been placed on Iran that are actually wide cast uh, weapons of war and those tend to have enormous collateral effect. Interesting. Can you just tell me, well, I want to get to Afghanistan and, and Ukraine, but just because I am a historian, what changed it from a weapon of last resort to the first thing we do? I mean, I do think that from a historic standpoint, uh, the fact that the cold world paradigm of uh, mutually assured destruction and the kind of increasing uh, warfare capabilities of nation states have made going to war such an untenable thing that it seems that if we were to switch to this financial track, we could achieve some of the same aims that some uh, war planners would, uh, would achieve with the mass destruction of factories or things, but doing it with a weapon that is uh, kind of... Uh, I don't think it's less destructive. Fit for purpose. Exactly. Right? And fit for purpose. If you want to destroy an economy, target the economy, not necessarily a building. That's right. And, you know, partly because our economies are so much more intangible than they were when blowing up a mine or a millery or a, something that was producing munitions was much more relevant than it is now. Absolutely. And I think it also has to do with the fact that the world economy particularly since the 90s, has become so intertwined that whenever you have a sanction that's meant to pull on a particular thread, it brings to bear the geopolitics of all the affected parties in supply chains and all of the other things that these are the 
invisible pressures that are beyond the first order effects of the sanction. So jumping to this other conversation that, that you and I have had often in the last couple of months, which is, I did believe the hype and naive as I can be. I believed the hype that, you know, when we were using sanctions to ensure the rights of women, that that was what we were doing. And I don't know, I'm guessing wildly naive. I mean, I think we all thought that way. Uh, I think, you know, if we bring the case of Afghanistan since the Taliban's takeover, uh, the last thing that the world wanted to see was Afghanistan descend into war all over again. Uh, and so as untenable as it was for a Western coalition to lose the enclave of a 20-year invasion, I think the only next step that they could do to repudiate the Taliban administration that had come in unelected and by force was to put in place sanctions that actually have largely been in place since the late 90s um, and were ramped up as a result of the September 11 attacks. Um, but the UN Security Council and US Treasury sanctions to the Taliban, the Haqqani Network and other um, part of their uh, coalition have been actually in place for over 20 years. And so it's almost as if uh, by going to the sanctions uh, from a public relations standpoint, it could show to the world that something was being done about this Taliban regime. But in fact, it was not materially different from it, anything that had already existed for at least 20 years. Okay, so I'm going to dig one layer underneath this. I mean, I think there's ways in which we rationalize sanctions and we rationalize war by saying we're protecting rights, maybe. Yeah. Naming this more more broadly, but at, at, at some point we name that the problem with Afghanistan, the problem with the Taliban in particular, is their treatment of women. And that becomes a rationalization to take other actions. Yes, and you're absolutely right. I want to say that's, that's a good thing, right? I mean, I think, again, there's a, there's a public relations component to it. Like I was saying, the, the, the Treasury did ramp up their sanctions as a result of the uh, August fall of the government and the subsequent Taliban takeover. So there was new sanctions. Um, but I, I do have to say that the co-opting the struggle for women's rights as a justification for the application of this particular weapon of war is very counterproductive, given that uh, the tool had been ineffective to curtail the Taliban activities for over 20 years, even when there was a U.S. military presence on the ground. Uh, and it, it's, it's highly unlikely that the same tool would yield different results now. So this narrative of this is happening because of women's rights, it, it's uh, co-opting and kind of hijacking the conversation about women's rights in Afghanistan uh, by justifying the application of, of the sanctions as tools. Uh, furthermore, I think one of the things worth keeping in mind is that these tools would be effective if the Taliban 
derived their financial resources from formal markets that can somehow lock them out. But we know now that the Taliban, for the better part of the last 20 years, have has financed its operation through the sale of illicit drugs, heroin, and methamphetamines, which provided between 2 and $3 billion in revenue a year. Uh, and that doesn't even include the new activities that are revenue generating for the Taliban, which is this unofficial custom duties that are placed on trucks that are coming in. Um, so the Taliban is actually getting access to resources outside the formal financial system. Therefore, the sanctions are not affecting their access to resources at all. So I think what's so fascinating about this is, and, and you know, this is so much of what Criterion is is often wrestling to get underneath, is sanctions seem to sit within this they sit within a framework of how we think the global economy works and therefore what we think sanctions will do, that there is some sort of formal system of trade. And if we stop it, we will stop the formal system of trade without recognizing that all of these systems don't actually act as formally as we think. And therefore, assuming that they're formal, having formal restrictions, if that's not actually how they work, is... I don't know, so many things, not effective, not realistic. I mean, it's not only not effective, it's counterproductive. If we see the immediate aftermath of the sanctions put in place for Afghanistan, all of the international relief agencies had to rework the way they were getting resources into Afghanistan. And what this actually helped surface is that all the players in the financial system that are, are above board were uh, affected by a sanctions regime that was meant to curtail the activities of people that have never been above board. And they've always been managing this outside of the formal financial system. So that that's one piece of it. Uh, and so now we saw that between August and December of last year, the Treasury had to issue five different general licenses in order to convince financial institutions that it was okay to send money to relief organizations doing work in Afghanistan. But, you know, what the, the truth was that even though the Treasury had said it was okay, financial institutions were not doing it. And that is known as the chilling effect of sanctions, which means that from a compliance standpoint, they won't come near it, despite the fact that all or most of the people transacting on the formal system are above board and are not subject to the sanctions. <laughs> it, it blows the mind, right? So try, try, I know you've had a bunch of conversations and, and have been researching a lot sort of how people who look at feminist foreign policies look at, look at sanctions, because that's one of the, you know, again, if it's a if at some point we are trying to restrict warfare because we know the fallout of war, sanctions are a weapon of war. The, the, maybe the jury's out on the extent, you know, the, the damage that can come from sanctions and the fallout effect and the chilling effect of that. But let's say that, especially as we're looking at the Ukraine right now, like I'll take sanctions over, over direct bombing. I, I don't know. In my mind, I'll take that. But but so in your conversations around sort of feminist foreign policy, how do, how do we really balance the power dynamics in this? Um, 
what would be, I don't know, Pablo magic wand, like what's a better sanction? Like what should these be doing? What, what would, I don't know. I know you don't have a great, none of it is like, what would work? I just want to know Pablo, what would work? Well, I, I mean, interestingly, I, I actually think uh, like so many things in the world, the thing that we're meant to doing with some of our policy choices are not what we're achieving with them. So ultimately, I do think uh, in the case of Ukraine and the entire kind of oligarchy surrounding uh, the Russian leadership and the Russian uh, assets, it, it shows a, another facet of the same problem that we were talking about in Afghanistan, right? The, the oligarchy and the Russian leadership hasn't, doesn't have a problem accessing resources. And so if you boycott their entire financial system, lock them out of the SWIFT, what you end up doing is only uh, playing into the narrative that the Russian administration can be telling their population about a world that has turned on them. And the truth is that I think uh, if I were to start thinking about how sanctions could possibly be better, uh, I would say we need to find sanctions that don't affect uh, the general population because at the end of the day, uh, winning hearts and minds goes a lot further than antagonizing them in terms of uh, changing the overall policies in a particular jurisdiction. And when it comes to the intended effects of sanctions, which means locking out participants from the financial system, I do think that some of the work that we've seen that's happening right now, that the Treasury and uh, and a lot of the European Union has been doing, which is these highly specialized task forces that are researching and unveiling these mazes of shell companies that are used to hide assets and going out and seizing assets that directly affect the individuals. Uh, I think that that is the real surgical strike. Uh, and hopefully that would uh, not fall into this chilling effect that tends to affect, uh, affect the civilian population that is not in any position to change the circumstances of a country at war. Yeah, just I, I think that sort of the collateral damage of sanctions is is never it cannot be underestimated. I want to come back to something else you named though of this sort of it made you think made me think when you're talking about these sort of specialized um, tactics. This I mean, I'm stuck on this idea that sanctions would work if everybody was following the rules. And then we're saying we're changing this rule because we're, you know, we're, or we're, if everybody was following rules and working within a structure of an economy that was logical and made sense, then sanctions could be used as a logical tool. But at some point, we're working in a place that's a little more driven by chaos than an orderly set of rules. And that means people who have power, the initial rules didn't necessarily apply to them because they had already created their own set of rules, right, that, that applied largely to them, right, sort of ways in which whether the Taliban is, is, is selling meth or the Russian oligarchs are buying yachts, it's all happening sort of extra legal. When we say there's an informal economy, 
in, you know, in a community that's led by women, we're like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. We should formalize all of them. We see oligarchs with yachts. We don't have that same response of like, they should all be playing by the rules. I mean, maybe we do, but we, I don't know. You know, that thing is like the people who can work around the rules and then the people who can't. And there's something about sanctions that assumes that everybody's following the rules. Am I, am I, am I onto something here? I think you're right. And I think that that what you're speaking of has a, a, a cousin issue, which is, um, you know, the highest tax rates are paid by common citizens that are, you know, not above a hundred thousand dollar a year incomes and the highest earners can afford, let's say for, uh, quote unquote tax efficiency planning. And, um, what that means is that what effectively we have two financial systems, right? Like the, or even three, I would say we have the completely illicit financial system, which it's hard to quantify and hard to intervene in it. Uh, I think over the last couple of, uh, years, different institutions, uh, the treasury, OFAC, they've tried to do a lot more on the, uh, on the illicit economy. Uh, but it's very hard. Uh, I think a lot of people point to Bitcoin as this thing that enables the illicit economy, but the illicit economy in Bitcoin terms is maybe in the billions of dollars. The illicit economy in fiat, in actual dollars, is in the trillions of dollars. So, you know, we have an issue with the illicit economy altogether, and the technology is not the problem. Uh, then you have a, a, this kind of intermediate point where it's like uh, a lot of people are playing the game. If you have the resources to play the financial game, uh, which is, you know, jumping jurisdictions, shell companies, trusts, uh, split shares, all of the different uh, tax planning vehicles that in many cases are quite legitimate, uh, but they can be stretched and perverted uh, to the point that I think, you know, they, they could be considered tax avoidance. And then you have this economy the regular economy, the one that you pointed to, which says, you know, we have a lot of uh, informal workers. Uh, I mean, governments around the world want to formalize uh, work so that it can be taxed. But I wonder just how much more can be, you know, I wonder what the yield is if you invest in taxing the avoiders as opposed to taxing these uh, people that are trying to make it into the formal economy. And what's the what's the tie between, that was very much in terms of the informal economy and taxation, what's the tie between that and then the sort of locking people out of the markets tied to sanctions? Is that a similar mechanism or yeah. what's the, what are the parallels there? I think you were uh, on the mark when you said, you know, we the, the sanctions are designed as if everybody played inside this, the playground. But the truth is that there's a lot of activity happening outside. And, you know, we've been trying to use technology to track more of that. But the technology is a double-edged sword. You know, the more technology enables us to track uh, financial uh, operations, it also helps us evade it in a certain way. Um, so I think if you think about sanctions and why they're missing the mark it's 
because they're aiming within the map. Right. And the actors that the actors that are uh, usually targeted by sanctions are specialists at moving outside the map. Or moving the map. They don't even move outside. They just relocate the whole the whole map That's moves right. someplace else. <laughs> but I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. So so maybe maybe to wrap up the eight you know since I've already asked you what's the magic solution, I'll switch to just ask a more moderate question of two audiences. What's your advice to investors? So, so you've done this amazing work sort of looking underneath at the power dynamics underneath sanctions and really looking to analyze it, not as if everybody was playing by the rules, but looking at who has what power. And given that they have that power, how do these tools play out differently for, for different actors, which is this power analysis, which is so important. So if you have that lens of the power analysis on sanctions, what's your advice to investors who are looking at the markets and trying to figure out how sanctions are playing within that? And then what's your advice to people who are working on social change and trying to figure out what should they, sh what should they ask for? If you're sitting at a table trying to shift sanctions what should the advocates be asking for? So let me answer the second one first, uh, which is really uh, about advocates uh, and, and social actors, which is there's a wealth of new technology tools that are uh, borderless in a certain way. And those, like the fintech revolution taking place right now is going to enable money moving in ways that can still be above board and completely legitimate, but not fall through the cracks in this chilling effect of the traditional financial institutions. So resorting to global tools, even basic payment and, and tools that are used for remittances are, are really um, sturdy and resilient uh, against these types of uh, sanctions and, and other uh, kind of policies that are meant to curtail financial activity. Let's just create a magic bucket there. But I, I think that there's a, a, a piece there that the, as the world is more global, these global tools will help for activists, you know, stay compliant, stay above board and use tools that provide the right level of transparency so that they can avoid getting tripped up in the in the sanction maze. For investors, however, it's a quite different story because sanctions and this chilling effect has this long lasting tail. And so even when we remove sanctions, it takes a really long time for the financial deepening. So, you know, the financial relationships might exist between two institutions or through a correspondent bank, but but the chilling effect, this compliance uh, gauntlet is going to remain a, an issue. And so that is not only an issue for investment coming in, but the at the tail end of an investment when you're trying to get your proceeds out. Uh, so I would say uh, for an invest investors that are uh, concerned about sanctions, I think you know the, the risk avoidance is the best way to to treat that. Not because uh, there's any specific thing about the jurisdiction that is good or bad, but because 
of all the collateral effects that are so unpredictable with sanctions. My takeaways from your your work over the last six months is also just a, a, a reminder that no matter who we are as actors, if we don't have eyes wide open to the power dynamics, um, then we're then we're naive, right? And we're 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 sort of buying the story that's being told that you know we're saving women's lives by putting sanctions and not looking at the underlying challenges that that are playing out. And it's it's just a it's just a the reality of looking at the power dynamics unveils significantly more complexity than is tolerable for most people looking at a situation. On the flip side, denying that it's as complex as it is is also just not going to work, right? Sort of saying, but it, at least it's, you know, so, so really thinking through, I think at so many levels, it makes a case to eyes wide open in the power dynamics and making sure that we are looking, digging deeply, tolerating that this is complex and that we can't simplify it for convenience sake to feel like we're making a difference. Yeah, I, I fully agree, Joy. And I also have to say, whenever we hear these, you know, headline news and we read about sanctions, I think we have to think about them as weapons of war. And just like uh, there are weapons that cause long-lasting fallout, I think sanctions have a particularly insidious hidden effect of the fallout that they cause for common citizens that have nothing to do with whomever the sanctions are targeting to. So it's uh, a, a very interesting thing, very complex. Uh, but most importantly, I think we have to ask ourselves if the international paradigm uh, that has moved to be so quick with sanctions now, it's one of the first lines of response. Uh, if that is really uh, causing a deterrent to the behavior that we're trying to curtail with the sanctions. Well, I'd love to. I think we should be imagining different possibilities of what other tools can we build that will shift power dynamics in these moments when we absolutely should be taking action. We wish we knew what action should take and sanctions might not be the first go-to that is appropriate. Thank you so much for this. Absolutely. I want to say that one lesson that we did learn along the way is that while sanctions uh, haven't really worked to stop the Taliban in Afghanistan in any way. Solutions that have worked despite the Taliban are largely community-based. So investing in communities uh, is is perhaps the counterpoint to sanctioning an entire government. I love it when looking at the real economy is actually the answer to managing complex global systems. It's so often true. Anyway, Pablo, a pleasure to work with you every day and to talk to you today. Same. Thank you so much. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.